Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. The author, Neil Strauss, is with us today. Neil's written a bunch of books, has been a ghostwriter, has been a New York Times author. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to get because in his earlier life, he had written a lot about dating and how to help men be better pickup artists. He wrote a book called The Game. But what I got when I sat down with him was a guy who was deeply curious and humble and reflective. He has got married 10 years ago, had a son, and then got divorced. And that's when he did the process. It was a beautiful conversation as he talked about how life works and how he works and who he is. And he's trying to figure it out. I hope you figure it out with us as we sit down in this episode today. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning. And on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Neil Strauss is with us. Welcome, Neil. Hey, good to be here. We are glad you're with us. Neil, you are a 10-time New York Times bestselling author, contributing editor at Rolling Stone, former music critic, cultural reporter, columnist for the New York Times. You've won the ASCAP Dean's Taylor Award for Excellence in Music Journalism. And in 2018, you were honored with the Los Angeles Press Club's Journalist Award for your Rolling Stone 50th anniversary cover story on Elon Musk, the architect of tomorrow. You have published, written so many books and uh, such transparency and vulnerability in those books. Anyway, we're, we're glad to have you. Thanks, Drew. You know, I'll say this, your, your name came up and we were like, wow, I don't know if maybe he won't even reply. Maybe he doesn't, you know, he's got a busy schedule and he's got a, a public profile and you came back right away. I would love to when tomorrow, next week. It was so great. I haven't done a podcast in so long, uh, because again, I'd rather, I just haven't done it in so long because I say no to everything. Uh, but this to me is, you know, how important Hoffman has been in my life and how important I, hopefully it is. And I assume it is in those listening and will be for those who go. So said yes immediately. Um, when did you take the process? What year? I wanted, I want to say it was just before the pandemic. Okay. So maybe 2019. That makes sense. Literally time stopped when the pandemic started and I, we sat down and figured out how, how it works since. Yeah. What led you to take the process, how'd you hear about it? And then what led you to say, yeah, this is for me? It's interesting, and this really rarely happens, is um, I've heard such incredible things about the process, and I'd recommended it to so many people. I think on my own journey of healing and trying to resolve childhood trauma and 
operate in the world with greater emotional intelligence and, and uh, not make a mess of my life and other people's. You know, I kind of came across the Hoffman process. I wish I could remember who first mentioned it to me. Then I started recommending it to other people. So I'd get the letters that they send you all the time from the Hoffman process, like really a lot of them, um, of people thanking me for sending them there and talking about what a difference it made. And I really realized that I really, really just need to go. There are other things I've recommended, probably a few other things I've recommended, all of which I've experienced. Uh, but this was in such high regard that I realized I, it's time for me to set that time aside and go. Neil, in preparation for this interview, I've listened and read a lot about you. And have you talked publicly about your experience in the process before? I don't think I have. I know only amongst friends and colleagues, not, not uh, on a podcast or publicly at all. I have no shame about doing any healing work at all. You know, if my your therapist might tell you, hey, if I see in public, I'll pretend like I don't know you, but I think it's a one should be proud to be going to therapy and working them working on themselves, to be proud to to go to the Hoffman process and say, well, my well-being is important to me. So I feel like there's this odd stigma around this stuff when I really think it's a badge of honor and courage and excellence. Like I respect someone who does this work. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I, I couldn't agree more. And people that come to the process are ready and on some level come into terms that this is their humanity and not something that makes them abnormal. In fact, it what connects them to the part of being a human in the world. Yeah. And I think when, it, when a celebrity goes and wants to keep it a secret, and I know some people who fit in that category, I think, well, are you going to be shamed for it? To what degree are you going to be shamed? And to what degree might you inspire other people to say, hey, if that person did it, that's okay for me. I know, for example, when I went to get LASIK on my eyes, I looked to see where celebrities went because I know they're not going to mess with their vision or where athletes went because their vision is their you know, entire income and livelihood. So I look for those recommendations. And I think that there are many people is, who've gone who uh, aren't public about it. And I wish more people, and realize it's a little off the subject, maybe what we're talking about, more people were very public about doing this work because, and also we're able to admit they're imperfect, you know, because we all are. And, 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 and holding up a facade that you're perfect, I think, is harmful to your own well-being as well as the culture's. Thank you for, again, for putting that out there so pointedly. And when I have read a lot about you, it seems like like that is your mantra. You are unabashed and full of this desire to grow, this desire to learn, this desire to help other people grow and learn, and, and not afraid to uh, reflect on your mistakes or say that what happened was something I learned from, even though it was painful in the moment. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, I see. I mean, I see a couple of things. One is maybe as a writer or an author, you really just have to tell your truth and share the parts of yourself. I think we share the parts of ourselves that are the most vulnerable, that we have the most fear around exposing. It actually helps other people relate to that. Carl Rogers said that famous quote: "The personal is the universal." And when we share that, other people are like, "Okay, I don't feel." It's like a sad song can make you feel happier when you're sad because you're like, I'm not alone in my sadness. And I think when we share these stories, other people relate to those locked up parts of themselves. You know, we see everybody really happy or on the outside, we see people happy or neutral or going through the thing, but we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And I think when we can bring that out into the open and heal it together, we get to move forward. So yeah, so I think my books were taking a problem in my life, finding the tools available to fix it. <laughs> 
and then sharing it with other people. And I think I really, this journey that led me to Hoffman, I only got there by admitting I was <laughs> really broken and messed up. Neil, I read somewhere that you were broken up with on your prom night. Was that, is that true? So yes. On my prom night, my date left with the problem with someone else. So, uh, so that encapsulates my, my high school experience. And, and I guess non sequitur jumping into that, but what was the, the pain point that brought you to the work? I mean, the homework itself takes forever and then the process is pretty intense. What brought you there? Yeah, it's really a process. I think if I was to have to say the real point that it was, what would be, uh, you know, as a writer and a journalist, I really thought I was the one who wrote about all the weird and crazy people and I was completely normal. Then I was uh, dating someone I had cheated on her, got caught, destroyed the relationship and, and was really just wrecked about it. And, and uh, I think there are those moments when you see your, yourself in the mirror and, and are repelled by what you see. And it was one of those moments. And I was with a friend who was saying, hey, if, if you love this person and you cheated on her and hurt someone you love and hurt your chances for the future and you wanted to get married to her, and if sex that wasn't even that, that good anyway was, was more important for you, to you than her and yourself and your future, then maybe you're a sex addict. And the short version is um, that I, I checked myself into sex addiction rehab, just really just trying to figure out what was wrong with me that I would do that. And I remember a moment there where you do a timeline and you walk through your your sort of life history. And, and I saw there was a moment when the therapist said to me, well, there's a reason why you've never been in a healthy relationship. And I go, uh, what's that? And, and she goes, well, it's because your mom wants to be in a relationship with you. And it sounded so extreme. And she goes, there's a word for that. It's called emotional incest. And it was so extreme, but something in my body just recognized the truth of it. And I felt this cold wind blow over me. And all of a sudden, all the moments of my life just snapped together. And I completely saw the pattern. And I think that was the moment when I'm like, when I sort of stepped back and realized, oh shit, everything just fell apart in that moment. There's a great therapy called post-induction therapy. And the philosophy is our childhood is like a hypnotic induction. And again, I think Hoffman deals with a lot of, the, a lot of this stuff in such a beautiful way. Ch your childhood is a hypnotic induction. You're basically in a cult, right? And these one or two or three or however many, however many caregivers are in your household are running that cult. You have no other, until maybe you see your first teachers, you have no other outside influences. And this is the reality. If you're in a house where you're being hit a lot, then hitting is what adults do and you deserve it. If you're in a house where uh, there's strict beliefs about X or Y or Z, then that's your reality. So you're basically getting brainwashed into this cult for 17 or 18 years. And the job of adulthood that I didn't learn until that point as a late bloomer was to sort of leave the cult because we can still be in the cult even if we're not physically there. We can still be in that mindset. And sort of see the truth and see the reality and then uh and then do the work it takes to get into reality so that was the moment when i realized oh shit this thing i thought was a reality or these things people always say is a form of resistance that it's completely normal in their family or their home or their city they're from or it's just what it's like and and that was the moment when i saw oh shit it isn't normal it's just normal to me because i experienced it for 17 or 18 years at home and i think that's true of everybody that that we could have that moment. And again, I think Hoffman does a wonderful job of, of helping you come to this conclusion and then releasing it that we can realize that maybe that reality isn't the actual reality. It's something we can step back from, see the truth of it, and then from there decide how we want to live our lives.
hypnotic induction. I hadn't heard that before. I love it. And the comparison to a cult, it, it really does match up. Yeah, it's a great concept, right? I think as a parent, if you're telling a child the world is like this, you're sharing what it's like, that just that literally they, they don't have the facility to question. They can't fight. They can't flee. And they have no other context to even doubt. They just trust and accept, which is so beautiful. But what are we trusting and accepting? And I think one of the things that I noticed is that after that experience, you got back together, you got married, you had a son, and you wrote a book, which really the truth, which reflects so much of what you were learning about yourself and about relationships, such vulnerability there. I think there's different stages of healing. Again, I get the hop is such a beautiful process because it moves you through them in this wonderful way. It's the only thing I've actually seen that moves a group through it in this wonderful way. But um, the awareness is the hardest part <laughs> of healing because the awareness really means like, well, it's like if you're aware a cup is broken, well, you still can't drink out of it if there's a hole in the bottom, right? So now I'm just aware and now I'm just annoyed with this cup because I still can't drink out of it. You have to, the awareness is like the frustrating part of, I think, the journey because before it's just, you're doing it and, and things just happen to you and it's, you have nothing to do with it. It's not your fault. You have no agency. And once you realize, once you have the awareness of what your patterns are, where they come from, why you do them, the awareness just lets you know what's, what's going on and, and it can be very frustrating. And, and again, the Hoffman does such a good job of bringing you through the next pieces of, uh, of releasing it and repairing it. Neil, if you take us to your process, do you have a moment in time when you feel like you were struggling and moved through something or a period you remember from your time? You know, I think what's interesting and unique about the process is everybody's being moved through it on a schedule of sorts. You can get stuck somewhere. You can just get stuck somewhere while everyone's moving forward. And it's interesting, I sort of got stuck in this place where I felt really stuck and was going to a deep shame place. All of a sudden, I had this epiphany of this dichotomy of my family where I was projecting my family relationship with my brother, who I felt was always the golden child, and I was the, the scapegoat or the, you know, or the one who always blamed for everything. Um, and I realized I was projecting it on the group and then feeling like someone else was projecting my brother on someone else, and they're the A student, and I'm the F student, and, you know, and, uh, and just sort of withdrawing from the whole experience. But then when I had the breakthrough that it wasn't about the group, it wasn't about the person, it was just about me and my own past issues, it was like a really big breakthrough. I remember sort of crying and letting that go. So. The point being, you have you can have a very individual journey through this, and things come up because you know our wounds are relational. And some, if we do one-on-one -on -one therapy, well, we're not really we're maybe we're in this power relationship with the therapist, but when you're doing it with this group and and these sort of peers, or you're in this sort of social setting, other stuff comes up and rises to the surface, and you get to deal with it there and see that it's not about that person. We do say frequently that if it happens here in the process, it probably happens outside in life. And that's a great example that you were having a reaction to one of your classmates and through guidance and your own insight, you were able to connect it to your, your brother. Yeah, it was very, it's very interesting. I still, and I think there's an exercise, and I love this exercise, uh, the vicious cycle. And, uh, and the crazy thing is that I think the other thing I remember, this is like, I kind of put my worst case scenario, vicious cycle, and then it literally happened afterward. And it was so interesting that I was like, oh, that's funny. I, I wasn't all in my imagination. <laughs> some, of, some of these things, it was very interesting. Like I had this sort of fear that I explored and then the fear kind of came true. But Wait, Neil, so, so part of the vicious cycle is 
you write down some of the things that you would go into thinking, doing, feeling, and the way in which these patterns build one atop the other. And usually you reflect on something that's happened in the past, but you're saying that your vicious cycle was a prediction of the future on some level. Yeah. In fact, as I talk about it now, I realize that it's very similar to the dynamic I just said. Yeah. So literally I said, well, there's a group of the vicious cycle in the past was I have this small group I hang out with. Uh, and I really feel like I don't fit and I don't belong. And that's the vicious cycle is the thought pattern of I don't fit and I don't belong. And then I'll say, ironically enough, like I was ejected from that small group, which was so so odd. Is this in your real life? Yes, yeah, this is in real life. I always kind of think about it. There was one person there who had some beef with me and sort of made up. It was an odd thing. And I always think about, oh, I, and it made me question. I mean, I would ask this since you, it made me quite, I thought it was so interesting. I'm trying to get rid of this thought pattern that I don't fit in, but maybe sometimes it's right. I didn't fit in, but it doesn't mean I have to act out of that behavior. And who knows the vicious cycle could have been my feeling of not fitting in for, you know, brought about certain behaviors that didn't fit in. And it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's hard to unwrap these things, but I always thought it was funny that my vicious cycle. And then we go to your, the course case scenario was sort of being ejected or kicked out. I'm like, Oh, that happened. Um, so I don't know why I always think about that. Yeah. And connecting it to your childhood where, you know, that sense of unworthiness or shame of not fitting in, like I don't belong. Exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly it. I think, that's, I think it's a great point. Uh, but it's true. It's very interesting how it fits in, of feeling less than my brother, feeling less than in that situation, feeling less than in the group. And then, and then the question comes from how much of that less than feeling contributes to the outcome or, or not. Right. Well, our outsides will eventually match our insides. So if we're feeling it, and not managing it or working with it, then eventually we're going to act in ways that cause us not to fit in. Exactly. It's, I mean, that's true. And sometimes there are groups that we don't fit into, and that's okay. We're still worthy, wonderful people. I think life, I think human relationships are so complex. You know, it's very easy. I know a lot of people who are very, very healthy people, but as soon as they get in a relationship, especially a love relationship, all of a sudden, all that health goes out the window. So it's very easy if we're just alone to have no issues. So many of our issues are relational and, you know, people dragging all kinds of baggage behind them, meeting, meeting somewhere. And, uh, and I think having these great tools that, that help you, uh, there's so many complexities that come around through just people relating. Neil, I think that's one part where you're really a leader as a man, helping men learn about, talk about, discover, grow from, and lean into relationships. Do you feel like that's, I know that some of the work you're doing now is helping men show up in different ways in partnerships. I think there's like a message to, to like share that I feel is like really important to me is that so much of what we put on our partner, think about our partner is just not true, you know? And I find that so many people project childhood issues onto their partner and parentify them and then try to change them to make them into the ideal caregiver they ever had and and that they get in this power struggle and thousand issues on relationships i could go into but i think that health that understanding your childhood and their childhood and being conscious that most of what your problems are with them have nothing to do with them and finding ways to healthily communicate that don't involve control coercion judgment blame punishment reward ultimatums 
criticism can really create a healthy relationship. I definitely have worked with a lot of people where just changing the way they talk to themselves about the relationship and the way they talk to their partner about it creates a giant shift and only one person needs to do it. Neil, I'm curious about writing because you just have a way with words and people love your words. You've really been so successful at it in in many different genres. And now you have a podcast you've done more recently. But can you share a little bit about your writing process? What's it like for you to write and and how do you connect it? Are you dialed in to your spirit as you do it? What's your writing journey about? Almost everybody I know wants to write a book. And then they judge themselves, going back to that theme of not being a good enough writer. And you really don't need to be a good writer to write a book. You really need to like just be a good storyteller, organizer of, of information. And so that process really comes into different phases to it. It starts with what idea am I so consumed by that if I don't share it, I'll feel like my life was incomplete. Wow. What idea am I so consumed by that if I don't share it, I'll feel totally incomplete? Yeah. And versus what I, what I have to do versus what I can do, because we can do a lot of things, but it's what do we feel like we have to do. So it starts there. And then there's a playful exploration of what's the best way to tell it. And, and so I'll work on really finding an introduction or a way into it that's very, very interesting. And it might not end up being the chapter. And then, then it's, I do what I call the vomit draft. The first draft is I just keep writing and just vomit out everything I have to say onto the screen and with no judgment of if it's good, bad, organized. And then when I'm done, I know that somewhere in this big pile of vomit is uh, something I can organize into a readable a readable book. I'll end the vomit metaphor. And so the second draft, it's like a sculpture. Now I have, I know that you have the block of stone and I don't need any more stone. I know it's all in there and I just have to shape it so that it's interesting to other people. And that takes a lot of time, but, but the process really is the idea that consumes you to vomiting it out. So it's out of your head in the paper to then, uh, you know, shaping and molding it into the best book you can be with no fear. And then the last phase really is when I put on maybe the analytical or critical thinking and I just pour through everything and think about, did I explain this right? Is there a counter argument to it? Uh, sometimes we worry about people involved. I won't worry about the people to the very end and then think, should I change their name? Are there identifying details? They're not identifiable. You know, how's this going to land? Am I, you know, am I owning everything myself and not putting on someone else, you know, and, and, and all those little things, like all that, all the thinking that people worry about later, like what's someone going to think? Well, no one's going to read your book until like it comes out. So you can just save that to the end. In the meantime, if you pour your truth out, you can later uh, take whatever precautionary steps you need to make before sharing it. But you, I feel like if you just start with pouring the truth out, it's better than just worrying about what other people think. And if you're worrying about what other people think too soon in the creative process, sounds like it, it just shuts it down. Yeah, it's a limitation. We don't want to limit our, when we're, when we're in creative flow, we don't want to limit ourselves. And I think anything in life, right, that fear-based thinking is not going to allow you to creatively self-express. Neil, I've heard you talk in, in other interviews about somatic experiencing and the power of moving your body. Do you move your body when you write? Do you get up, walk around? Do you crank tunes? What, what's happening in that experience? I guess my main thing is when I'm writing, my, I only have one rule, one rule, which is like, I just can't be interrupted when I'm not just writing, but in the writing process. So if I set aside a day to write, if I'm just going, walking around the house or going to the refrigerator or something else, I just don't want to be interrupted by the, the phone. The phone has to go away. So the practical steps are, I put my, there's something called the kitchen safe. I'll lock my phone up and put it in there. Uh, there's a program called Freedom, 
that you can download on your computer that turns off the internet. And then anyone who's around knows that just, you know, until maybe a certain hour that just not to talk, say hi, but not to ask any questions or put anything else in my mind. Even when we're not writing or not creating, uh, we're still receptive to ideas. We're working through ideas. We're working through problems. And sometimes the best thing we can do when we're stuck is to step away. And like you were saying, move. If I go surfing and if I'm stuck and I go surfing and I let go of the question or I loosely hold the question, uh, the answer will just come to me. Sometimes, you know, I think as you even talk about in Hoffman, it's not, you know, we've overvalued the intellect and we have these other parts of ourselves that we don't often commune with. And do you feel like you get answers on how to write, how to tackle it from other aspects than your intellect? Oh, for sure. For sure. I definitely think that all the different pieces of the quaternity can speak up at different points and, and, and give you the answer. It might come from any one of them or that magical combination when they all unify into something transcendent. Are you in the process of writing something now? Uh, I'm in that first process I talked about where I'm playing with the ideas and seeing which idea is consuming me. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I have these different ideas and I'm waiting to see which one is consuming. It's such a internal journey, paying attention to which idea is consuming you. The inward leads to the outward. I'm, I'm just really struck about how your personal growth, your trusting of your intuition, your trusting of your internal process is what makes you so creative and powerful as a writer. Oh yeah, thank thanks. I think I really think it's I really think it's all internal. Like when I'm writing a book, the audience really only is me as a reader. You know, I'm, what what excites me? You know, I'm really looking inside to say, well, hey, what really really excites me? What makes my eyes glaze over? There might be some there were ideas in the book you were talking about the truth that I thought were really important to express, really important. But when I read them, they just felt dull. They felt like they dragged. They didn't excite me, and I just removed them. And in the end, we kind of have to listen. You know, our intellect might say, well, you need to write this book, and you need to share these ideas, and it needs to be about this. Uh, but then we have to let that go and listen to, like what you said, the, the, the inner, inner guide and voices. We feel that about people, too. We have some weird vibe from someone, but our intellect says they're great, they're perfect, they're great on paper. Look at them. This is exactly what we're looking for. But that inner voice uh, knows, and whether, you know, whether it's your you know, inklings of your higher self, or you're tuning into, you know, a guide, we, we have whatever way you want to name it, it's just really, really listening. And maybe I don't even have to analyze what that specific voice is. Neil, so what is one thing that quickens your pulse? And what's one thing that makes your eyes glaze over? I'll give you an example. I was at, I was at a dinner recently, and there was someone at the dinner who was a, a spy. And they were telling their stories that were of how they were trained and how they did it. And the whole table just stopped and everyone was just hung up on it, listening for like an hour. And I was like, that's a story. And, and I connected with that person and introduced them to a, a book agent and, and hopefully they can get to tell their story. It was really, really wild. Uh, so I'm just noticing that uh, when does time stop? And you're just really, really in that moment. And you're not thinking about anything else. And as another example, uh, you know, I might play with a book idea I want to write, and I might explain it to people, and you get that, oh, that sound, that's interesting. That seems really, yeah, you should do that. That seems super interesting. You're like, okay, no, no, I'm not. It's not taking hold. So you're sort of looking for all these cues to see what's really, really exciting. And sometimes, I mean, as we know in life, what we want is different than what we need. And, uh, and there's this disparity. I think it's true also, like what we want to share might be different than what we need to share. Literally, if I think of anyone I was at Hoffman with uh, and hearing their stories, they'd all make incredible books, incredible films. But who has the 
A, the courage to authentically tell their story, which which is very difficult for some because they worry about judgment. What are my parents going to think? What is my friends going to think? Am I going to, my coworker is going to be upset? Is uh, what people look at and think of me differently? So the first thing is that courage to share your truth. The second one is the self-doubt to know that your truth may not be the whole truth. And the way you saw it may not be how it happened. You know, and that person who did those horrible things to you may have actually had good intentions that you misinterpret there there may again sometimes they're literally a horrible person other times maybe there's a, something you're not seeing in which in which we did that so so really not being able to share our truth but then really being able to loosely hold our truth and recognize there are other truths out there and then i think thirdly knowing which part of this is interesting to other people and which isn't and and figuring out that way so i think that's maybe the way uh, everyone has a great story to tell but who can tell it vulnerably and the courage to tell it vulnerably and convey it in a way that's interesting to others. I'm just remembering the Phil Collins letter on your wall about his frustration about a review you wrote of his music. Talk about not caring what people think about you. You you wrote it anyway. The letter was after the review, but it's interesting. I just wrote a review in the New York Times of like a Phil Collins concert. I was a music critic for a while. And he wrote this very, very angry letter that ended with the words, well, Neil, f- you. And I think it speaks to, I was shocked that somebody again who's that successful playing madison square garden uh, and again i wasn't mean or savage or anything in the review that was that sensitive about it and it's funny you talking about that speaks to one of the book ideas i have is a book called the power of low self-esteem which is really about the idea that we it goes back to what i was saying at the beginning of this conversation that low self-esteem is something we all have like sadness right and then to get rid of it entirely is to not do justice to a part of ourselves and we can get into a healthy relationship with that and recognize that these some of the greatest people who've changed the entire world or the culture still had self-doubt and we sometimes hold ourselves up to these standards that are just not human pretending we don't have it or trying to make it go away i say well there's something wrong with me because i feel insecure sometimes (laughs) like no man there's there's nothing wrong with you like we all feel insecure sometimes but like you're actually great for acknowledging it and sometimes feeling like what brings people to Hoffman where they have these incredible experiences that that change their lives and their relationships is they feel like something is wrong and not enough and they ha- need that a little bit of low self-esteem to recognize that shit, something could be better. So I think this can drive us to create, share, transform. We, we, yeah, I love it. We, we judge so much of our internal experience without understanding its value. And that's one you could automatically try and dismiss or make go away or make wrong about ourselves when we, when we feel a little bad about ourselves. And often we hold others to, to inhuman standards of, of perfection that, that are unreasonable also, and we can see how we perpetrate that as well. Neil, is that question worthy of what bores you? Like if you go to a dinner party and people are talking about something it, what are you like? Oh, get me out of here. It's an interesting question. I, not, not what I expected, but, uh, but I, I think the hardest thing is a lack of self-awareness. There's some people who talk with no self-awareness. I think that that's the thing. I mean, I can literally listen to people talk about anything because I'm so curious and I find people interesting. But I think someone who is really clinging hard to an artificial image of themselves and then is trying to recruit everybody to also agree with it is very exhausting to be around. And because you you mentioned it, you've written books with other people and about other people, and that curiosity just comes out, your ability to sort of take on their view of the world. 
How have you done that? Are you, are you a great question asker? I think it comes from genuine curiosity and really, really caring. You don't have to learn to ask good questions if you're really curious and you really care. If I look back even over my interviews over time of decades of interviews, I usually was asking, trying to work out ideas in my own mind or things I was curious about through those interviews sometimes. So I think, I think it really comes from like letting go of inner narratives that we're talking about. How am I doing? Am I doing okay? Is this person going to like me? Am I saying the right thing? And just throwing that out and really being present for and curious about the other person's reality. Neil, how do you know the process is still alive inside you? Has anything happened recently where you felt the work you did some three years ago? Something really beautiful, something really challenging. Uh, the beautiful part is this. Uh, I do think it's important, and people who go to Hoffman always ask me, you know, how do you lock it in? I think it's important to stay in the practices of quadrinity check recycling and gratitude, you know, at the very least, uh, the longer you can keep those practices going, the better. So I came home and I do a gratitude practice with my son every night. And we talk about the, uh, I guess I won't go into the details of how it's done, but, but yeah, we do that gratitude process every night. And I think it's been a beautiful thing that I could pass on and share with him and do myself. And so that's a part where it's really alive in me and my family and passed on to the next generation. Then the challenging part, the challenging thing is, uh, when I did my vicious cycle exercise, and my vicious cycle was, well, there's a group of, I'm a very, I was never a very athletic kid. And we were going, going back to my high school, I was always picked last for sports teams and I was not athletic. There was me and this really thin, I still remember, I'm not going to mention her name, but it was down to the two of us. And I it was either, either going to be me or her and it was 50-50. And I was just, I remember that moment of terror and I was just not an athletic kid. And so I have uh, a group of people who I just love working out with in the morning, but they're all very very athletic and, you know, alpha males. And, uh, and my vicious cycle was, I feel like I don't belong in that group. Uh, when I go through my vicious cycle exercise, it ends up with me being kind of kicked out of the group in my mind is where it gets to. And literally one person in the group had a conflict with me in their minds and I got kicked out of the group. And so I was thinking, oh my God, my worst case scenario, my vicious cycle thing literally came true. The emotions were one was it was kind of reassuring because I'm like, I'm not crazy. But then the other part was, well, to what degree did my thinking about it, the vicious cycle bring that outcome to play? You know, in other words, if I felt like I fit in and I belonged and didn't have that thinking pattern, maybe that outcome would not have happened. So I thought it was an interesting reflection on that exercise. It was really odd. It was really odd. I'm still sort of trying to process, to process it to what degree. It was like, oh, I'm just picking on something that was in the air. And to what degree did, did I create it? And the answer probably is that they're both true. So you're looking for a new workout group? I am. So if anyone's listening in Malibu, reach out, especially if that other person who was picked last in sports class wants to join me <laughs> in school. <laughs> High school PE is such a source of trauma. I don't know if it's true for everyone listening or it's maybe not true for everyone, but I'm seeing my son go through different things in high school gym class. It really like the crazy idea of that we're going to have kids pick from the weakest, strongest to the weakest person. It's like such a bad setup for uh for uh, you know comparison and and, and judge self judgment it is it's it's horrendous i'm imagining the two of you right next to each other horrified and and almost frozen in time in that image yeah and and i think that's what the interesting thing is when we have empathy for others when we realize i mean going back to a high school reunion and realize that every single person there even the most popular person in the class has social trauma or felt like they were the outcast or felt like they were picked on or felt like they didn't fit in. It's really been a shocking experience to go realize that 
on some level, that was really the experience of everyone. And maybe that goes back to the power of low self-esteem book idea that, uh, that I think there's a lot of reassurance in knowing that we're all struggling with different permutations of the same issues. And even someone who's incredibly arrogant is probably overcompensating for really low self-worth. It's the flip side of the same coin. Yeah, I look forward to reading that book in a few years, Neil. We'll see how much it possesses me. <laughs> we'll see if I lean in when I listen to the podcast or, <laughs> or not. Neil and his desire to be possessed by ideas that move him. I love it. I started off with that shocking replay of the high school prom, but what's it been like to reflect on your story, your life, your Hoffman experience? Yeah, it's interesting if we talk about the things we discussed, which is you know, rejection at the prom, rejection at home with my brother, rejection at the Hoffman experience with the with feeling the other person was more liked or you know doing it better or whatever it is, and then with that group, you know, we it's funny how we're just such social creatures, and uh, and, and this idea of fitting into the group, you know, can really drive us while also want to express our individuality. So it's very interesting. I, I mean, there's so much about Hoffman. There's a part of the process that's, that's about forgiveness. There's a bunch of things I love about the process, and, and, and I just think everything just comes in the right order, that not until we sort of heal and release ourselves can we get to that forgiveness part. I think the way it was done was so powerful and so beautifully, it just really powerful. And I think I've done a lot of work, and, and that one piece has not been in the work I've done, and, uh, and it's really wonderful. And so one of the reasons I did the process is because I've sort of come to learn from just working on myself and helping others work on them, themselves that the secret to healing is this combination of factors. One is deep, intensive experiences, like the Hoffman process, where you really, really work through stuff. Then two is some kind of maintenance where you're checking in my Hoffman group. Even though this was three years ago, we still communicate almost daily. We did, uh, you know, we organized reunions. We organized other classes with the teachers. So the fact that we're still in touch after three years really helps remind you and, and keep you centered. And people talk about their challenges in life. The third part is having tools to use when you're when you inevitably backslide. Which again, the Hoffman provides those tools. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Those three pieces, which is deep, intensive workshops, tools to use when you backslide, and some sort of regular form of support. That's where talk therapy can come in handy. I think those three things can help you create a change and maintain a change. So I feel like that's really been important for Hoffman and having this experience and learning so much, releasing and letting go of so much, feeling so amazing afterward, and then having the tools and the group to stay connected with were really important to me. Yeah, I'll certainly I'll never forget the week or two after Hoffman and how I felt then. That was really one of the most incredible feelings of feeling clean, you know, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and in every way possible. Neil, so grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I remember, I literally remember after Hoffman saying grace or, you know, or gratitude before every meal and really feeling it on a deep level before it's sort of a rote thing I sometimes do, but I really felt that. I really, um, uh, it's really incredible what happens and, and, and how it works. And yeah, I'd be curious to ask you since you talked to so many people, Drew, what advice would you give? The other people on maintaining that incredible post Hoffman, maybe a word for post Hoffman glow. You know, um, I was wondering if you might turn the tables. I was listening just right before this to the Lewis House podcast, where he he was interviewing you, but 
midway through, you had him talking about his breakup and what's happening, and he's all vulnerable and saying he doesn't know if he's going to post it. I thought it was such a, you're such a good question asker. I mean, I'd much rather learn, even this, I'm like so uncomfortable. I'd really rather, I really am more in, in, in learning than like hearing myself uh, talk. But, uh, but, but I do, but I am curious, but I really am. I hear you. And, you know, one of the things about Hoffman I like is the be, do, have, you know, that if we can focus first on our essence and on who we are, and you referenced that, I, I thought getting the, the most beautiful woman would, would help me be happier. And it turns out if you're a, I forget what you said, if you're a confused person or a messed up person, the relationship won't help you. You've got to figure yourself out first. So helping people understand that it's not what they have, it's not what they do, it's who they are first and feeding their internal experience of themselves, fortifying their, their deeper connection to their spirit as a first step. And then acting from that place as if you are that person being that person and then you will have the life you want so the be first the do second the have third for me is is just a nice way to orient myself to the world and then how do you be in other words like like they say you're uh, stressed out and someone's like hey man just relax you're like, no, you're just making me, that's not going to work. I know I need to relax. You're not helping me. I'm more stressed out now. Like, in other words, how do you, how, do, how does one be in the, in, the way, in the way of being that serves them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what I support students doing and grads doing and, and show up in my own life as best I can <laughs> is to come back to my body. My body feels... I just feel like, and maybe we could do more in the process to help people connect with their bodies. Certainly the somatic work and the research around what's happening in your body. But if I can come to a calmer place through breath, through closing my eyes, through time alone, through writing, through being in nature, through stepping away from a conversation that's going south, or if I get noticing, just the practice of noticing my body, my heartbeat, what's happening in different areas of my body, constriction or expansion. For me, that's just the doorway to all things that are better for me. And if I ignore it, all things that are, that are worse for me. That's really good. That's really good, Drew. I think I like that. I like that. It's, I think that, I mean, two thoughts. One, one is, yeah, I see what you're saying being, it's really just focus on like, I am literally, it's not like a way to be or a thing to, to do. It's just really like, I'm just go going back to just feeling what's happening inside. And that's recentering myself that I'm just this person who's breathing, heart is beating. There's some movements and energy in different parts of my body right now. And it can sort of recenter and reground you. And in and, and, and this simple truth, I, I love that. I, lo I love that. And secondly, it's funny, I, I give people that exact same advice, which is if they're in a situation where they feel they're starting to get energized, let's say, and they're going to get reactive or it's going to go bad, or they starting to feel, go into that place. We all know that place and we all have different signals that take us there, right? We might feel vibrating. We might start to feel our voice raising. We might start to feel um, everything narrowing into a tunnel. We might start to feel the need to defend ourselves or to get upset or feeling in our heart. Whatever, when, and I totally give people the same advice, which is let 
whatever it is, make an excuse, say, Hey, if someone's able to hear, Hey, I just, I'm just finally starting to feel myself getting reactive. I'm just going to step out for a second and be right back. Or just saying, hey, I'll be right back. I have to go deal with something or go to the restroom or whatever. And then doing exactly what you said, just grounding themselves in exactly, exactly the way you said, seeing the truth of the situation and then coming back in after they've reset is such a great tool. I, I love that. Yeah. And it's not as if what is important to me goes away I could, I just can say it or speak to it or be with it in a way where it can be met with success. Whereas before, however, I was going to express it because I wasn't coming from a more grounded place was almost dooming it to failure. Yeah, exactly. It's like you can respond instead of reacting. I think people often, people often misunderstand this important idea and being uh, in your most healthy, non-reactive, connected, harmonious place doesn't really mean that you're accepting, that you're just sucking up everything that someone gives you that, isn't, that doesn't sit right with you, or you're just sucking it and holding it and, and staying uh, namaste about it. You're actually able to hold it with patience and then at the right opportunity say, hey, I just want to, if you're open to a conversation now and you get that agreement, Saying, hey, I just want you know, you mentioned this earlier, and for some reason, it just didn't ring right in my head. I want to discuss it with you, right? We still get to, we're not just sucking stuff. And people mistake, I think, sometimes this advice about uh, being equanimous and centered and still and non-reactive for for like not expressing yourself, and that can end up leading to resentment and acting in instead of acting out. So, uh, so it's a nice. I love that you're that, that you brought that up. It's so the deeper we get into this work. Uh, you know, the more fine line, the more uh, the more fine some of these points are, but they make such a big difference. Yeah, I'm just smiling here because the fact that you've done the process and and the work you've written about in your life, and here you are talking about it as it relates to Hoffman, just makes me happy that you're connected to that experience. Your week at White Sulphur Springs. One of the things that kept me from going to Hoffman originally it, why it took so much time I felt for me is because in large, most large group trainings have, let's just say a marketing element baked into them. And, and we, I won't mention the names of them, but a lot of them, I'm going to say pervert the messages and plant sort of seeds that later are used to manipulate people into doing the next part of the program and enrolling others. I was worried about that going to Hoffman and, and to find that that they, first of all, the program had the confidence that, the, hey, we don't need to do that, that none of that was part of it, that when it comes to discussing other things that are available, it's in its own compartment. It wasn't, I, I, some of that stuff I think maybe poisons or keeps people, or at least it kept me from going and seeing the high integrity in my experience, at which I experienced Hoffman and seeing that the confident, you know, discussion and options of other programs and things you can do without, a, without there being any kind of that, and people still recommend it and it still does well. And it, I think what kept me from going was thinking that it was in the category of those other programs when it really is not. I appreciate that because it is what we say. We, we tell people, don't tell people to go to the process. They will be able to see in you the changes, and that will be enough. You don't need to sell it. In fact, we're waitlisted for a few months now, and your embodied presence post-process will be enough. And when they witness that, they'll say, I want what he's having. That, that's it. That's it. It's having that confidence. It's having that confidence. I think some of those other 
programs can hurt the work, can hurt the development, can hurt the person, and can hurt someone's you know openness to going through uh, something again. There's a brainwashing thing that happens at those other ones again, and I'll let it go. But I love, like you said, it's like if this is great, and, and yeah, you're someone's like, hey, what what happened? What shifted for you? You discuss it. In fact, I recently, um, I mean, here's another post Hoffman story, which is I was in a meeting and I was up for consideration on a project, and uh, we started talking about Hoffman, and we'd both been there. And I got selected for that project because we both, you know, knew we'd work together well because we both done the work at Hoffman. No way. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Wild story, right? How did that come about? I think they had recently gone there and they said, "I just went to this thing." I'm like, "What was it?" And, and the person said, "What it was." I'm like, "Oh my god, it's incredible!" And we just bonded on that. And then right away, we both know we knew we'd be working together. It's the wild thing too is the bonds you make with somebody in a week. You know, some of some of them know you better than your closest friends because you're all so vulnerable together. Do a lot of the groups stay together in a way like our, I guess I know our group is like literally, you know, has been very active, has reunions and events and things. Some do, uh, many do, not all do, but but it's great to hear that yours is so uh, connected even three years later. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also great to hear. I mean, it's interesting too. I know some people do the program virtually sometimes. I mean, it feels like I wonder how that experience compares to doing it, you know, it, doing it in person. Yeah, I think it 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 can't be the same, right? It's it's not the immersive experience that the process is, but people do love it, and we continue to do well with it. The Hoffman Essentials online Zoom course over two days. Great, yeah, and then also I think if somebody can take that time aside or or feels not ready to, you know, it's it's an issue. I think I think I always tell people doing it like there people are. I think there's nothing even the even the detox from phone and media is 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 already so healing <laughs> that that uh, that I think is really another special part of the program. Neil, this is so good. Thank you for this conversation, brother. Yeah, thank you, man. And thanks for thanks for being open and thanks for their fantastic questions and really doing so much resource and also just for 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 including me. I'm, I'm proud to, to be a, an alumni of the process and proud to and really happy to be able to share the experience. Thank you, Neil. All right, thanks, Drew. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi. Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.